Hello. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> welcome, welcome. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And we are the hosts of the Nexus podcast. The Nexus is brought to you by the African-American Design Nexus. The Design Nexus seeks to gather African-American designers to showcase their craft, explore different geographies of design practice, and inspire design institutions to adopt new approaches toward elevating Black designers. Today, we're really excited to collaborate with Black in Design to do a little bit of an after show, I guess, a little bit of a QA, and a little bit of a conversation. <laughs> a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. Uh, and we're just going to kind of go over um, some of our thoughts from the panels this morning. There's some really exciting conversations. Um, the, I guess the titles of the panels, let me pull those up here. Yeah, and I want to make sure I get those right. And before we hop right into it, um, anyone who's tuning in who's a Harvard student, feel free to join us. We have a few students with us here right now. We're in Piper Auditorium. Um, and we're just holding this space as a time to reflect and really talk about candidly, um, how these conversations affect us as students at the GSD and have a time to reflect. Um, and audience, you're welcome to join us as well. Feel free to put um, comments, questions, any inquiries into the chat. Um, and yeah, we could loop you in the conversation. Yeah, we're super excited to get started. The first conversation was called Everyday Portals to Black Cultural Pasts, Presence, and Futures. It was with Emmanuel Admatu, Felicia Davis, and Dorothy Berry. And the second conversation was Designing for Black Queer Pleasure, Joy, and Intimacy with Aishan Crawley, Adam R., Leslie Wilson, Anissa Etris, and Malcolm Rio. So let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you, Tara, is how Everyday Portals um, kind of plays into your work in relation to both the African-American design nexus and the podcast, um, but also in the stuff you're thinking about personally at, at school. Um, and this is a question open to the audience if anyone wants to join in. Yeah. So what I found really interesting about the idea of the everyday portal was this idea of the accessible archive. What is archiving, right? This idea that something is kind of existing around you and is telling a story about your past. Um, I mean, we every day we talk about how the Nexus, you know, and these sort of podcasts are this form of oral history. Um, and it's important for us to create this oral history as a new form of archive. Um, but I found it really interesting that, you know, in this panel they were talking about how certain things shouldn't always exist in certain institutions like Harvard, like, you know, certain documents shouldn't have to exist here to be considered a real archive. Um, and then mm -hmm. you st start to think about the things that you have at home and that your parents have, like old documents, old, I mean, they were talking about Bibles. I mean, I come from a very, you know, Christian family. So, you know, old Bibles, old photos, old documents, old clothing even. Um, I mean, in Nigeria, we have a lot of fabric and my mom will always be like, who knows where my old fabric is? Like, have you seen my fabric? Who touched my old fabric? Stuff like that. Um, yeah. And those are a form of like, you know, everyday portals. Um, I should be like, I remember this because we wore this, we, we bought this fabric for your fifth birthday. You know, the whole family all had the same fabric for your fifth birthday. And that's like a, an example of like an everyday portal. 
um, and things like that. So it was very interesting to kind of have these conversations about and think about portals as things that take you back in time. Um, one of my favorite um, examples of a portal that one of my professors years ago talked to me about was like an elevator. And they were like, you know, an elevator is a portal because, or like a subway station or something like that. It's like you get into it and it just transports you somewhere without you actually seeing the journey compared to stairs mm -hmm. where you see as you're traveling along the way where you're going. In an elevator, you enter it and you just magically appear somewhere else without seeing that journey. Um, same thing with the subway. You entered at one station and then you just appear somewhere else and you exit somewhere else without seeing any of the steps along the way that would have helped you transition to that new point. So in the same way, when you're seeing these objects, they're kind of like portals to different times and places right. um, that just like, kind of instantly transport you to somewhere without you seeing like the steps along the way. Yeah, um, this is Wanjiko chiming in, and I am a Master's of Urban Planning student here at the GSD. And um, this conversation actually really challenged me because right now I'm in an option studio where we're talking about memory and particularly collective memory. And um, our studio is focused on New Rochelle uh, in New York. And, you know, for just like a quick background, New Rochelle has um, some of the oldest black communities in America of folks who were um, enslaved and folks who were also free um, and lots of folks who moved up there during the Great Migration and then uh, many immigrant communities, black immigrant communities as well. Mm -hmm. And um, part of this conversation we're having is around how collective being part of collective memory gives you power in a city, in a spatial um, place. And how when Black people are removed from collective memory, that helps that part of the process of disempowering Black communities. Mm -hmm. And this conversation really challenged me because I was like, well, you know, if our pieces, our kind of memories are, you know, like real things like your mom's fabrics, you know, my grandparents, uh, my grandmother just passed away. So I've been thinking a lot about getting to go home to Kenya to kind of archive some of the things that um, are the story of our family from like pre-colonialism to colonialism and post-colonialism um, and if those things just aren't part of kind of the collective then do we get erased even further and it challenges me because it's like well is it you know is that the only way for us to kind of gain power as black communities the power that we need in order to kind of make the changes um, in our communities that are absolutely vital so yeah I just found, found myself really you know pushed and challenged to think about how that could be different instead of just yeah. what I've been thinking about and talking about in studio. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. funny. Um, you, and that's not funny at all, actually, but it, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, kind of what I'm thinking about in studio as well. Um, I'm in a studio called Highways Revisited. Mm. I'm just thinking about the how, how we can reimagine re highways. Um, and so much, our first project was actually a board game. Um, and for my board game, I wanted to think through how highways were oftentimes so violent towards black and brown communities mm -hmm. um, and how oftentimes when we're learning about highways and we're thinking about that violence, pe people, there were houses that were displaced, there was culture that was displaced, but we don't have a way of knowing what that violence means or knowing um, kind of what what that displacement did. And um, it reminds me um, the things I heard about the conversations, Felicia Davis's point about mm -hmm. how history gets fractured. And as a result, we have to go into the imaginative 
we have to imagine things with a with a precision mm-hmm. in order to kind of stitch together and suture together those histories of displacement, those histories of violence. Um, and for for me and my work and kind of how I'm thinking, that's why I think the notion of a portal is so impactful and, and powerful because it is a way to kind of act as a suture between these oftentimes like fractured histories that you know, are tied into the built environment, tied into our memory, mm. tied into the, like, the constant oscillation between, like, the individual and the collective and, like, the collective outside of that, which is, you know, sometimes, like, a consciousness that, you know, I could tap into when I'm listening to a song, but mm. oftentimes it's much more blurry, you know? One of my um, favorite, like, research interests on non-Western architecture, you know, like Western architecture is all about archiving and things that are meant to freeze in time and all of that, um, is these, um, they're called Imbari. They're these Igbo houses um, designed and that are intended to be designed during times of like difficult calamities. So it could be if there were was a nat- natural disaster or something like that. Um, but especially around the time of colonialism, there was a certain group of Igbo people who would build these in Bari. Um, and what you do is you build these houses and what you build into it is you embody whatever the calamity is. So during the time of colonialism, what they would do is build the house and then they would build um, models of like the white people colonizers in t- as well. And they actually started to build two-story houses because that idea of the two-story house also came with the- what was meant to happen was as the house deteriorates, um, the community is supposed to heal from that. Like as the house de- deteriorates, um, the problem is supposed to go away with the deterioration. Um, and I am always so interested in these projects because there's so much embedded in that. Um, because you also like would make um, figurines of, you know, like deities and all of that as well. You build those into the house and all of that. And it's supposed to be something that allows for communal healing um but it also is like a historical signifier of at this point in time we had a community calamity um whether it was colonialism um so you'll literally see like figurines of like white men with guns um deteriorating um and it'll as and the amount of deterioration it tells the story of how long ago that event happened so they are kind of a record of when these things happened and what the event was, and all that. And in a sense, it's an archive. It's like a community archive. And, you know, the practice has faded out over time, but there is actually a historian who still does them. Um, And it was interesting because at one point, he ended up building a version of one in a museum, I think, in the U.S., which kind of is, like, against the idea of it. But he's like, well, in order to do so, I had to, like, in order to raise awareness and to, to continue the practice of it, I had to build it in a museum so people would be aware of my culture so that the idea of what this is could live on. Um, so he had to kind of make it in a space that would freeze it forever, which is in a museum. But the whole original concept of it was that he would have, is meant for it to deteriorate. So it was this weird thing where in this new society, in order for the practice to be continued, he had to kind of adopt this Western idea of freezing his culture. Um, and I, I don't know, there was just so much behind it that I, I always think about that idea and that object um because what architecture that meant to deteriorate should we allow architecture to deteriorate? i don't know there's a lot in there that i'm always i always think about in every single project that i do i feel like 
there's so much embedded in it. Yeah, and it, it also reminds me of the the previous panel discussion, like the notion of being down with time, um, which Leslie mentioned. Um, and I, I, what I, I for me, the, I, I really enjoyed how that effort subverted the museum and subverted time in the museum and turned the museum to a place of reflection, turned the museum to a place of retreat. You know, um, uh, here at the podcast, we try to interview um, many different practitioners. Uh, and we interviewed Seku Cook, um, and it was just released on Thursday, um, which was a very apropos moment because so much of his work started with the Black and Design Conference. Um, anyway, that's a side check that out. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he mentioned the Black Reconstruction Collective uh, exhibition at MoMA um, and thinking through making that exhibition, but then also thinking through the role of the museum, like asking the question of, to what extent do we res rely on the museum to, you know, to freeze work and make them make it seem important? And what models are there outside of that, which I think relates so much to kind of how we understand the histories of objects and them being frozen. And then the connection that Emmanuel was making on the living archive in the living time and how, you know, there might be something that culturally belongs in the museum, but we are it, it, it's, it's being used, it's being, it's being live. And then we can connect that to oral histories and a lot of other things. What are you all's thoughts around that? Um, my name's Toby. I'm a student here at the GSD in the MDES program. Um, I prefer oral histories because I think that's the history that I learned growing up. Like most of our um, histories were like from like your grandma growing up. They tell stories about their childhood. My parents experienced the civil war. So they talk about like the Nigerian civil war and everything. So like that's how it's been passed down. And I think writing it down is good. But it's like if we as a culture can keep up the tradition of passing down oral histories or talking more to people or just talking about it, I think it might it works out. But um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, but when we're talking about um, temporary things, like, I know we were, we were just talking about museums and the temporal. Um, one, one artist that I also talk a lot about in my research, and um, she, she isn't Black, but I do love her work, Annika Yee. And it's just because a lot of her work is meant to be temporary. Um, and a lot of her work is meant to kind of, she works a lot with with um, scent, but she also works a lot with bacteria and like stuff like that. So she will make art that is, that literally you'll see the bacteria growing. And so, but she puts it in museums. Um, and the, she always says that like museums always have issues with what to do with her work after it has been um, like, after the show is done, because it's hard to store bacteria and stuff like that because they're literally like um it could actually get hazardous this is kind of a biohazard but it looks really cool because it'll start to look like little like organic cities growing and doing all this sort of cool stuff because museums are not they don't know how to deal with temporary stuff mm -hmm. um and it's funny because it kind of is the same thing with like oral histories right they they don't museums are not yet built to kind of know how to archive these things 
right? How do you archive an oral history? You're just going to have a room full of tapes. But then also the technology changed over time, right? So I, I actually used to um, have this one professor. He was Nigerian, and I took, like, several classes with him back at Amherst. And he used to show us these old VHSs of, like, footage that he or, like, old researchers used to know would record of, like, oral stories or, like... Um, video recordings in Nigeria and stuff like that. And I remember he'd be like, yeah, I keep always saying that I want to get a student one day to like help me digitize these and all of that stuff. And I'm like, bro, we got to do this soon because these VHSs, the more you play them, you know, over time, they, they're, they'll get damaged. We're going to lose this. Right. And then over time, the technology, with the changes of technology, we will actually start to lose a lot of these things. Also, with oral histories, they're, like, embodied in people, and people don't last forever, which is, like, how do you now start to preserve these stories? Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting, I guess, because through me watching some of these videos, now I can talk about what I saw. Mm -hmm. um, so him showing it to us, I guess I can say what I saw, but, like, I don't know. It's, it's always so hard, but I do love oral histories, and I, I'm wondering if it's maybe having the mix of growing up in two cultures where it was the oral history was valued um and then also growing up like in schools like this where they're like no no no, we have to archive everything like i work in an archive here and then i also worked in the archive in undergrad so i've always valued archives as well so i'm always like we have to archive everything but but why you know and why how do we find new ways of archiving that or go back to old ways of archiving that are non-western yeah, like I, so there's a comment here from Demetria Murphy um, that says, makes me think that the community viewed the calamity as something to be eventually hidden or even temporary, um, which is, it feels so accurate and it, it feels a lot like the, I don't know about growing up in this particular context of, um, you know, the Western world where everything is archived. I felt a lot of shame growing up when, you know, they'd ask questions about like, well, how do your people archive things, right? Like in, on the African continent, museums are a thing, of course, but like the way that they show up is is different and it's not always as kind of grand and, and fancy. So like I'd go home to Kenya and go to the National Archives and be like, oh my God, like this is real bad. What's going on here? And, you know, you realize that like that shame is coming more from like not knowing your own history and not knowing other ways of kind of um, memorializing, canonizing, living and, and being beyond this, you know, Western canon. And also just like feeling the sense that like, this is the only way and this is the right way. And so I, I really appreciate this point because I think there are, you know, other ways of conceptualizing memory, conceptualizing time um, that, you know, we are kind of breaking into during this uh, particular version of BID. And I'm super grateful that, you know, there are people bringing Yeah, and thinking about uh, the, hmm, how do I say this? The, I, it, it's making me think about um, the things that Adam Rhodes was sharing with the Poppy Juice Collective. Some of those images took me back to um, a club um, I've read about in New York called the Paradise Garage um, and how that was uh, a music venue. Um, the DJ was Larry Levon uh, and it was so important for uh, the black space and the queer space in New York at the time. Um, and the conversation around like the music venue and the club as like this kind of ephemeral space um, and how that's valuable because the, the ephemerality of that space can span between different locations. Um, and then thinking, 
thinking, continuing on this idea of oral history and continuing on um, how we've been discussing the museum, how the music venue almost presents like uh, a different type of museum or a different type of archiving. Like what do DJs do if not just play different audios that are kind of abstractions of like these oral histories. Um, And, but, but, but it is living. It, it happens and then then it leaves and it has like an element of fugitivity to it. Um, and, it and it can't be uh, tied down, you know, um, which, which brings me back to portals um, and thinking of, uh, I guess, how we can start to discuss space in the, the using like a measurability, using, um, you know, like starting to subvert are are the representations and the tools we have to to imagine and think about space um i really appreciated asher's work about like using section but like then transcribing sound into that section you know um so yeah um that was really cool that was sick right oh my god that was so cool (laughs) oh man you know you just oh man you said something and it just kind of reminded me of something in seku's interview um it was about when what was it? he said something about like the death of hip hop was when um and that and it was a quote that he said from somebody else actually um it was like the death of hip hop was when we when they actually started recording it or something because you got rid of the improvisation like you get rid of that like the freestyling of it all um right I, I'm pretty sure I'm getting that right yeah now. yeah 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 um and and I I think that kind of goes back to this whole thing of like our culture is all about this oral storytelling, imaginative free flowingness. And when you try to freeze it, right. When you try to like put it in place, it it loses that essence and that power that it has. Um, It's it's like the improvisational abilities Um, because there is also something in the ability to be a good oral storyteller. You have to be a world builder, Um, you know, and there, there's a lot of ways where, you know, when you're just like, when you go to an archive and you're just digging through files, I mean, I once again, I've worked through in archives and it's just boxes and boxes of boxes. And it's interesting to see the materials that they use and like the technology behind the kind of paper you have to buy that doesn't have acid in it. So it doesn't like wear away things like that, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, but I'm like, but look, the material does not care. Like, the way that you try to preserve the material will actually almost remove the the capabilities of the original materials to show its properties, mm-hmm. right? Like every material has the it is meant to deteriorate or it's meant to transform in different ways. But in an archive, you're freezing material from taking on the many different traits that it's supposed to have. Um, we I we should let materials transform over time. We should actually let things be different. Um, but they they lose that when we freeze them, so we never get to see things transform beyond, and, and to see what they could become. Um, and I actually think that's very negative. Um, one of one of the things I always found funny too when I was taking one of my you know Yoruba art classes was um, there was some like artifact that Nigeria wanted for a parade, like a, one of their Independence Day parades or something, mm-hmm. and they were like, "Hey, England, can we get it back for this parade?" And England was like, no, um, because the, the climate there is not conducive for this artifact. It'll fall apart. And Nigeria was like, um, we've had this, this artifact for years, like like hundreds of years. 
so what do you mean? And they're like, well, if you take it back now, it's so humid there. It's like going to fall apart. And it's like, dude, it was meant to be in this. It was meant to kind of change over time and be used in these kind of ceremonies. Let it do what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Let it show signs of wear and use. Like, let it show the signs of its history. That's the point. Um, So it's just, yeah, by freezing things, you don't really get, like, we need to show signs of life um, Mm -hmm. and things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what you you all might um, think of this and me showing my playing cards um, a lot. Um, How does this, you know, particular kind of these different notions of time and where and materiality, um, how does that settle with the fact that broadly speaking, we live in a world where power is accorded by how much of your memory is alive and centered, right? Um, and that's mm-hmm. what like archival and, and that's what museums do and, and archiving and um, these sorts of techniques. But how do those two notions kind of you know, settle for y'all. Sorry, I just want to clarify. So you're saying like you're you're validated by like which which institutions basically claim your archive kind of thing? That and the fact that like if your story is preeminent, you know, that does. Mm. And if you're the one telling the story, you know, there's a whole like uh, African proverb of the hunter is the one who's alive to tell the story, not the lion. Yeah. And that's kind of the same thing that we live in in terms of colonialism and white supremacy. Um, white supremacy is alive to tell the story and continues to tell the story, right? And part of the way that white supremacy is alive to tell that story is through uh, memorial and through elevating its own story in ways like this. So I wonder how that like kind of squares with this idea of, you know, we come from worlds and, and peoples that don't necessarily memory in the same yeah yeah it makes me um so at at some point we started talking about uh science in the first conversation and i was reminded of Catherine mckittrick's recent book dear science um Mm. and she makes a lot of great points but one of them is kind of on method and how in order to like study study blackness we need to have an interdisciplinary method um in order to kind of tie together all these different things and I, i think that so much so much of it to, to to be interdisciplinary is kind of a way to subvert i think that that tendency of institutions mm. to um memorialize white supremacist ideologies to memorialize settler colonialist ideologies like like you you mentioned um like the museum i mean i'm thinking of even something like a syllabus mm-hmm. it took me so long to realize that uh like after reading bell hooks that like i don't have to cuz I, I, I my undergrad was in social science so like we learned a bunch of social theories like we had like our marx and we had our hegel and we had like all these people so i'm like oh like in order for me to say something that comes from me i have to like know Hegel front and back and I have to be able to make a critique on this argument and I'm like actually no I could just start from somewhere different (laughs) and it's like quite a simple realization that Mm -hmm. took me so long to realize but then after that realization realizing that I guess I'm kind of bringing it to the academic institution that so much so much of how academic life happens is enforcing that understanding that it's like oh you have to be grounding your argument with certain theoretical constructs that are promoting narratives that 
don't resonate with a lot of what I felt personally in my mm-hmm. life, um, to use a biographical example, um, think that so much of that tendency can be counteracted by the types of things that McTrick is writing about in Dear Science and taking an interdisciplinary um, method um, to uh, subvert, <laughs> to have a portal around that, you know, or maybe we need to start talking about orbits <laughs> to really, <laughs> to really nail that down, you know? Um, I think the one thing that has been on my mind is the idea of like culture is people and people change. So then culture evolves in that sense. So like how, like, especially with like in African countries now, how we're changing culture, especially the younger generation, how we're bringing in like new limelights, talking about things more, showing it up in like our cultures and like that might change how we like freeze time. I especially don't like museums or going to them because it's like very, like I can't imagine the place the thing was in, especially most of the museums have a lot of like collections of like stolen art. That's what I call it. (laughs) Of like people's things. (laughs) So like it's, they're they're there. And like, if you go to a museum, especially when you're in architecture, you're like, everyone is like, oh, I want to go to a museum to see this. And you're seeing like, Things that are like, if you're coming from that country, you're just like, well, this, like, I, you see this every day in your country, and this is something that's there, but they want to preserve it in time as a, like a relic of something that was once. But like, the culture has changed. Like, that's still there. But it's like, everyone knows, like, how they feel. The way they like impart your knowledge to you, like, growing up, it's like, you know what this is, and your parents will tell you, and they will tell you the history behind that use. So you know it. So like it's in your brain, then you pass it on to people. But seeing it in the museum, it doesn't have the same like reference for you because you're like, it's so like, it's like frozen. Like, no one understands because unless you're from the country, or if you read the blurb that they always put up, it's not the same. Yeah, it's actually, um, so a lot of my thesis work that I'm doing is going into like Yoruba and epic um, mythology, but also like, Afrofuturism and tying them together because when you go to Lagos now, like it, it people are not like I don't know what people expect whenever they see Africa, like in the movies or when you go to the museum. But I'm always like, it changes, it advances with the world. Um, so you know, my project is really about doing a combination of that with Afrofuturism and taking a lot of the fabric because I'm always so excited with the fashion, the way that people use our traditional fabrics, and they just are so stylish with it. And now I'm like, let's do it and let's make some really cool spacesuits and let's get into it. And the wildest thing was, as I was doing research for my thesis, some researchers in Nigeria were already looking at like the electrical conductivity of some of the fabric or something. And I was like, now what's going on here? Why are they doing this? And I was like, they probably already have the same idea that I'm doing. Like, yeah, let's take this to space or something. I don't know what's going on there. But I was so excited to see that research. And like it, I was, and it was funny because um, Darian and I are in like the same like thesis and research group. Um, so we were talking about this, and our professor was like, "What are they doing?" I was like, "I don't know, but I'm so excited about it, right?" Um, but this is nothing that you would see in a museum, like the interesting stuff you can do with our fabric and the the materiality of it or anything like that. Instead, they would be like, "Look at this mask that was made." And I'm like, "It's it's there's so much exciting stuff happening," um, and and we're so like 
I don't know. It, it's just it's very frustrating sometimes to walk into the museum and hear them and and see them show photos of stuff that I'm like, what? What is this? Like, you know that my my culture advances like yours. Why am I not in the contemporary art section either? Um, you know, like we are making art. I'm Nigerian. Put me here. Um, so it, it's like very interesting. I don't know. Insert um, scene of Killmonger stealing the mask right here. <laughs> From Black Panther. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, but, you know, it was it's interesting that you're talking about science um, and and um, science. And I, I, was, I, re- I really liked that um, note about science is kind of getting more personal. Um, I, I know, like, you know, she was talking about how um, the journals will still send it back and go, well, be a little less... Um, personal because my sister is in a PhD program and she was watching one of her friends' thesis defenses and they all make fun of this friend because um, his thesis was about being queer and um, interviewing queer people. Um, I, I'm sorry, I can't even remember where he's from, um, but in, in East Africa and you know they were like, oh, but you know, like she's doing public health and all her friends are all doing like those kind of they call theirs like the hard science with the statistics and all that. And they're like, yeah, but his is you know they're all about their feelings. And they were like, oh, it was so interesting going to thesis defense because they were all just talking about feelings, how they felt, you know. And I was like, that's a science. But they were like, yeah, but you know he didn't really have statistics. That's it. Interesting that it's still considered public health, but it was all about how they felt. And I was like. It's a science, though. It's, like, weird. It's so weird, like, when you talk to people in the hard sciences that they're, like, like, I was happy to hear that his program considered that a science, but it's, like, even his own peers are still a little slow to come around to it because they're, like, but where's the data on your feelings? And I was, like, I don't know, the many interviews he conducted about everyone sharing a lived experience. Um, yeah, I know. It's just, it's just crazy to hear all of that. Interesting. I think science is, for me, take science is a very personal thing. And it's good that his um, program considered that as science, which is like something that we need to consider more. Um, science is like, as much as you're researching people, feel like I don't, sometimes data is like talking to people, engaging your feelings. Like it's very like if you're sharing your stories, you're like impacting more, you're making new things. It's still a science of making. You're doing something new. And I think we're also very used to like the way that science has been painted to us as like there's data to back up the facts. And if there is like no data to back up the fact, like what's believable and not So like that's the whole idea of like what's been like ingrained in our mind that we need to like sometimes we need to like step out of our mind and think of something bigger and different than what it actually could be. No, exactly. And I think that actually goes back to a little bit of what we were talking about earlier about tracing family history and the need for imagination and this need for the autobiography and inserting yourself in the work. Um. I've had a lot of thoughts about family ties and Oh, hi, by the way. <laughs> My name is Whitney Stevens. I'm a second year urban planning student at the Graduate School of Design and a co-president of African American Student Union. So glad to like be able to participate today. Um, but to kind of to your point about uh, like family ties and family history and just like the importance of that. I'm thinking about that a lot lately. Um, my father, for example, really traces our family history very deeply as a um, 
as a um, kind of way to not only just know who we are and where we come from, but as a way of like, you know, pride to an extent. And I think, you know, we, I guess as a diaspora, you know, we're always talking about, you know, oh, like, who are like, you know, our leader, like who's not like X and Z like, throughout history. But I think there's something to be said, you know, like your own like, personal family history. Because so I think that's just as important as knowing it's like the history of like our people as a whole. Um, and I think having that, you know, personal connection as well. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it just, again, furthers that sense of like pride in who we are, like a better understanding, like who we are, where we are in the world, what we've contributed, how we've been able to like survive and thrive and still, you know, be here today. So. Yeah. Something that I've been exploring a, a lot in my thesis is this notion of exile um, or like feeling untethered um, because, you know, it, it's like almost when, when you're searching for a, a family history, also a personal history, and then also just like a, a community history. Um, and I, I think that it's something that a, a lot of the Black diaspora and people are, are like, in general, are looking for. Um, and, it, it's, and it comes from, and, and that's why my project is this, creating this myth and this whole <clears throat> Afrofuturism where, you know, it's, it, it, it's like where we just need to pick up and leave almost and create a new story. But then through this whole idea of trying to create a new story somewhere else, you realize you can never leave the past behind. Um, is the point of my thesis. Um, basically, that you're always tethered to the past. So in this leaving and always trying to go forward, you always have to still explore what's left behind and parse through that and understand what's there um, and learn from that and glean something from that in order to advance forward. Um, and there's so many ways to do that. Like you're saying, like your family history is always going to play a huge role in that. And you always really have to explore that. And then you and, and filling in some of those gaps, you really do have to use the imagination and, and tap into the imaginary. Yeah, yeah. And it makes me even uh, kind of connect that to the spaces that we have these conversations. Um, I know this is important for you and in, in your work, but thinking about Sunra, um, and we, which we've mentioned on the, at the podcast, um, before I just thought about Sunra and kind of like his um, like Afrofuturist pioneering vision as something that just kind of happened. But um, I, I was reading a book um, about Sunra. It was called Sunra Chicago. And it didn't just come out of the blue, right? Like Sun, he was meeting with El Saturn Research Group in, in, uh, in the park and they were kind of discussing um, a wide range of topics ranging, ranging from theology to, um, to, to music, to blackness, to they, they, they really covered every, everything. It was a multidisciplinary research group. And then from that vision rooted in like the everyday practice of going to a park to meet, all of a sudden we eventually get to like this Afrofuturist ethos that's super imaginative. And it's like, actually, yo, I'm from the moon. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's like that connection between the imaginative and the everyday spaces, which I feel like is is so is so so interesting um, to, to to think about and, and and ponder on. And I don't know; it almost makes me think of like uh, like our context now. We're sitting in Piper Auditorium at, at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, um, and how you know I, I really appreciate this conversation because we're all being candid, and it's just like. A conversation that feels natural and it feels everyday, but how so often when 
you know, we're in these very like formalized, stiff, stiff, like, or like just, I don't, stiff isn't the right word, but just like restrictive environments. It, it almost feels like that invention can't necessarily happen like that. And I think it, it the, the, the freezing of time we talked about it, it kind of goes into like, some conversations that I think we've, we've, we've been a part of before. It's like, Oh, is this conversation is, are we in 2021 right now? Or, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just to kind of like, um, highlight that point, um, a bit and give y'all a little bit of insight into what's, um, you know, when we were working on building the theme for black in design, you know, we're talking about this, you know, behind screens, behind Zoom screens. All of, all of us organizers never met until, you know, the beginning of the school year because of the time we're living in. And honestly, we were just like thinking about like, what do we personally need in this moment to make happen? And a lot of it was like, yo, we need to like chill and we need space to just be mundane, to be normal and to feel like that is enough given, you know, the situation that we're in. And also at the same time, like, you know, to your point, Darian, just celebrate those like magical things that come from, from the mundane and, you know, through like a series of conversations and thinking about, you know, our own personal needs as students and also what we hoped could be a space to share with other people that we felt like other people, as other black folks needed too. Um, that's what came out of it sitting in this in Piper auditorium with y'all in our masks and in the darkness and having this conversation <laughs> is kind of a blissful uh, realization of that. So I think we um, have like, I think five or 10 minutes left of the conversation. Um, I know that we've had a few comments in the chat. Um, if anyone wants to chime in or add questions, we're happy to um, read things out. Um, just, kind of a general call of the time and if anyone else wants to contribute and stuff like that. You know, when you said I'm moving past history, for me, I see history as a means to learn more. Like, especially coming from a country that we don't have, like, our history is not written or it's been erased or there's a saying history is always told by the victors. And things like that. So it's like, how do we learn from our histories and um, use it to better in, inform our futures and what we do? And that's most of what my research is based on, especially like in the African diaspora. So, no, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Um, and the the wild thing though is that you can actually read a lot of our objects as history, um, and you can read a lot of the clothing. So my favorite thing about um fabric is that Yoruba people or like 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 Nigerian fabrics people will get custom prints that will have like designs that are very timely so they'll get a whole like shirt made that's covered in like iPhone prints um and you can literally tell like that's what came out with the latest iPhone and they were like I'm gonna look so cool if I have a shirt covered in iPhones and that is a very timely piece that literally you could look at 20 years from now and be like, oh, she got that made in that year. Um, so I'm like, you can read our clothes, you can read everything as history, um, but there's just so many different ways to read our history and it's not being validated. Um, so what we felt like doing in these last couple of moments is uh, Darian and I, and actually maybe some of you guys here, if you want to do that, we're just going to scroll through and read some of the comments in the chat because we, we also want to have those um, recorded for posterity because 
uh, this conversation we're having right now, we're going to release as a podcast episode um, for this month of October. So we want some of these um, amazing comments that we've also seen coming in to be preserved, even though some of you couldn't join us here in person. Uh, we want some of these to still be kept here so that we can always remember um, the great conversation we had. So I don't know, I'll, let, I'll let Darian go ahead. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so Samara was uh, said, uh, speak, uh, can you scroll down a yes, little bit? Um, yeah, sorry. Um, speaking of hair braiding, Felicia Davis, one of our panelists for tomorrow. Oh, is this from yesterday? Ooh, this is definitely this is from old, yesterday. Old, <laughs> we definitely went really far I went back. way too far, my bad. So this Here is actually go. the behind the scenes because we're going to edit this out of the podcast. This is... <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, if you if you go down, um, I think, yeah, we're here. We go here. We go. All right. Yeah. So, Victoria says, right. Thank you for this attention to oral histories. They are so necessary, and it's also beautiful. Our ways of passing down these knowledges. I love what the speaker just said because so often. It's about the intergenerational connections and relations that we build through sharing and telling and retelling our histories. And then Jillian responded and said, exactly, non-Western ideas of archiving, because the Western concept is hoarding, in many ways performative, non-sustaining, in many ways harmful. And that's, G I'm sorry, I said Jillian, it's uh, Jihan Thomas. <laughs> Demetria says, this reminds me of Mfo's discussion of temporal suspension. Time limits the spatial imagination, but Black epistemology thrives on the imprecise for both safety and creativity. Hmm. Continuing, agreed. Situating artifacts in the past feels like a tool of subjugation to disempower and its th thrivance in the, in the present and future. Wow. Awesome. I love these. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess um, kind of wrap, um, we could have a conversation on like how we could kind of bring the, this, this conversation or this energy to um, our studies and our practice as students of um, kind of broadly around the field of design um, and thinking about, you know, how we could keep this, keep this going um, and not let, you know, this conversation, if anything, you know, not having this, the podcast, the worst case of the podcast is freezing the conversation. <laughs> you know, we need to keep, we need to keep, keep going. You mentioned earlier on um, your background in social science and how you had to argue your theories with like Marxist or whatever. Um, one thing I learned like early growing up is that like your ideas are you. And how you present them is you. Sometimes it's like when you're some you and some people are already talking about the same things. But how I move about my design work is I present my ideas as me first before arguing it against anyone. And mm -hmm. I try not to argue against someone's ideals or something else because this is me and this is how I view something. So like putting yourself first and bringing in like I always bring in like my culture, my background and letting that show through my work as well. Yeah, I've actually um, recently found out that um, th this, like, big architect, um, Pezo von Elrichhausen, they say that none of their work is referential to anybody else, that they, everything they make 
comes straight like off the dome, straight from themselves. Um, literally, some who are referencing though ourselves. Um, but like literally, when you look at their work, you can say it kind of looks like this person's kind of looks like that. But every aspect of their work, it's it's really original to who they are. Um, and they're allowed to say that because at this point they've kind of proven themselves. It's funny because we're students. Everyone is like, no, like you, who who are you referencing? Show us all your references, whatever, whatever. Not just in design, but also like you know, like you say in class. Um, but you know, I I do find it interesting that I I, I think. There are some professors, thankfully, who are starting to kind of accept this new form of making or producing where you can kind of, where they let you produce intuitively or they let you come to conclusions intuitively. Um, and I, I'm, I feel like as a people in general, as a generation, we're kind of moving towards that. And I really hope it lasts, honestly, um, to mm-hmm. just kind of key into what feels right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think um, this question of like how to bring this like conversation into our practice and like our work, you know, both at the GSD and then like, afterwards, is like something I've been really trying to like toy with for like the past year. Like I think like when I came to the GSD, I had like, all right, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z, and then you know the pandemic happened, and now I'm trying to figure out how do I bring in like, you know, these ideas of like uh, Toby was saying, like you know, culture and like cultural identity. I have Gullah Geechee ancestry from my dad's side. So in some ways I started to I incorporate that. How do I explore that, you know, through my work? You know, is it like a direct thing where I just have like direct projects that only focus on like certain aspects of like my culture, like the topics that we're talking about? Or is it something that, you know, you just like kind of naturally interweave and no matter what, that's always present in the work. Well, thank you all. Thank you. I'm Tara Luafemi. And I'm Darian Carr. And you've been listening to The Nexus, a product of the African-American Design Nexus at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maggie Janik. And we would like to thank DJ Iwe for our theme music. To learn more about the African-American Design Nexus, visit us online at aadn.gsd.harvard.edu.